Let's go to James 1. I'm going to try to come back and teach on dreams, but let me go with an exhortation I prayed there. James 1, and that song says it adequately. All our life take over. The name of the game in Christianity is to give God as much as you can while you still have the free will to do so. There's coming a time when we will die and God will take us. And I don't have theology worked out on how the heart and will works out in heaven. I really, I don't, maybe, maybe it's a, a dispensation we can't look into because we know we have free will. We choose to do dumb regularly here. And then we repent. And yet we still take our mind, our will, and our emotions into heaven with us. And it's still a free mind, a free will, a free emotions. And yet I don't see any scripture that tells us that we'll be able to choose sinful thoughts in heaven, stubborn will in heaven, or vain imaginations in heaven. And yet what's the difference? What crosses over? I don't have an answer. I don't have a clarity on that. Maybe it's, it's like seeing through a, dark, a, a glass darkly. We're not meant to see yet because we do take our mind, our will, and our emotions into heaven. We take our spirit into heaven. We get a new body later. So I don't have an answer for that. So I'm just going to stay with it that this is the dispensation where we submit as much as we can to God of our own free will. Obviously, when we get to heaven, we're not going to sin. And I think we'll all get to heaven and wish we had submitted more to God on this side of life. So that's part of the Christian calling. How much of God can we give to him now? Not just our children, not just our marriage, not just our money, our hobbies, our emotions, our fears, those things we defend, our offenses, those things we make excuses for. As the song we just sang says, take over my life and I'll soar with eagle's wings. Or What area of our life is not soaring? What area of our life is like just some ground bird, just kind of flopping around with a clipped wing, half straggling. Every one of us has an area that's really struggling. And if a, a polecat gets in there or a coyote, that, that bird is dust. I didn't realize turkeys could fly until I shot one with an assault rifle seven or eight years ago. Chad, you'd be proud. It was about a 200-yard shot with open sights. But I hit it with a 5.7 Hornady blue feathers everywhere. And it took off and flew. It didn't fly high and it didn't fly long, but it flew probably 15 or 20 feet off the ground for a good 70 yards into the woods. And I thought, I didn't know they could fly, but he won't be doing that much longer because I went down to where I shot him and I'm, and you look, thought somebody tore up a pillowcase because they were just turkey feathers everywhere. And I thought, I thought I missed them. Oh no, not with that many feathers. What areas of our life barely fly at all and for very short distances? Because these are areas we need to submit to God. It's not enough to know the scriptures. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. The name of the game is not collecting doctrine or being able to say, I've read so-and-so's latest book that they just put out. Really, we can judge the quality of our Christianity by the fruit of our life. Some of us are quicker to pick things up than others, but none of us should be a little Johnny Dum Dum. None of us should be in remedial Christianity our adult life. And I'm not trying to make fun of those with true, genuine learning disabilities. That You understand that's not the case. Because it's even more of an indictment when we don't have a learning disability. We're just, it's not disability, it's just stubborn. And so when we study the scriptures, we're, we're looking into the word of God at a standard. And none of us are dumb. We can see what the standard is and where we're failing to come up to it. Now, the wonderful news is every one of us looks into the standard of God's word and God holds us all different based on where we are today. I, of course, as a pastor, I'm held to a different standard than someone who just got born again. But if you've been saved two or three years, your standard's way higher than you're probably willing to live up to. And that becomes deception, self-deception. 
Furthermore, the Bible says, for those of us who know to do good but don't do it, it is sin. Not a bad idea or a bad witness. It's just sheer sin. When we know to do good but we don't do it, it's sin. And that's, that's self-deception. When we've been given the standard of God's Word, and it's very clear, and thankfully as we read through the Scriptures, He turns on new lights and we see something we've never seen before. The conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon us. When that conviction comes, He raises the standard. We've experienced all of this in the natural. When we go to class or go to some training and the instructor says, all right, time for something new. We've laid the foundation today. We advance the skill. We advance the the theorem. We advance the practicality. And at that point, we advance to the next level of home economics, geology, engineering, physics, language, etc. For us to live at the same level of Christianity is a shame. Because God is an ultimate promoter and there's no ceiling in Christ. We set the ceiling. And we want to make sure that we are not deceiving our own selves. Verse 23 says, But if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Uh, one of the ways I interpret this is that when we look into the Word of God, it shows us who we are in Christ. We look into the Word, because that's the allegory. It's, it's saying that this Bible, these scriptures, are a mirror. Now, when we look in a natural mirror, we see our natural face. But here it's, it's principalizing. It says we read the scriptures, and it's showing us what we're supposed to look like, who we look like in Christ. And we're supposed to look into that mirror and say, oh, I'm forgiving. Oh, I put my flesh under. Oh, I'm faithful to church. Oh, I cast down unforgiveness. Oh, I'm to be generous. Oh, I'm to be a steward. Oh, I'm to love my husband. I'm to love my wife. Oh, 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 oh. And if we don't walk away and begin to put that into application, we forget what manner of man God has already declared us to be. But that's also why we keep looking and come back and look again and come back and look again and come back and look again. And one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of what we saw last time we looked. And we've all been under the conviction where the Holy Spirit says, hey, remember I told you to do that? Oh, yeah. And he keeps reminding us, because that's one of his job descriptions, to bring all things to remembrance. He reminds us until he doesn't need to remind us anymore. Now, we've talked about these seven job descriptions of the Holy Spirit, one of them being, I think it's number four, being he is the reminder. Now, that's number three. He's a comforter. He's a teacher. He's a reminder. Number four is he's the witness or the testifier. So number three is he's the reminder. You only have to remind people multiple times when they're immature or belligerent. My parents no longer call to see if I brush my teeth. I imagine there was a season when they thought I would never get it. We're in that season with our kids. Have you brushed your teeth for two minutes? Did you floss? And so we remind them until it sticks. Did you take a shower? Did you wash your stinky parts? Did you put your clothes in the dirty clothes? Did you do your chores? Did you empty the dishwasher? Take your clothes to laundry? We remind them and remind them and remind them until they get it. And that's how you can tell your kids are growing up and you are succeeding because you have to remind them of different things because the old things you don't have to remind them of, they have gotten it. But now we evaluate ourselves. What's the thing the Holy Spirit's still reminding us of? What's he still reminding us of? What's the thing we're still being reminded of? Because in that area, we are still yet a child. We're still yet immature. We're still yet a babe. We're not yet fully mature because we need constant reminding. Even on the job, because we're mature intellectually, the boss may only have to remind us a few times for a few weeks till it becomes second nature. If you maybe are slow or not apt in that skill, you may be let go or move to a different job because it just may not be your strength or your wheelhouse. But most of us, any job you put us in that's mechanical or repetitive, we could get it pretty quick and no longer need oversight. In one regard, there's always going to be the new thing the Holy Spirit's reminding us of 
And that's good because it's new. On the other hand, if you're still being reminded of the old thing, how long will you remain babes? How long will you remain childish? How long will you remain immature? How many times must the Holy Spirit say, forgive, forgive, drop the charges, forgive, be faithful, bring your mouth into subjection, quit being a gossip, quit being sassy. How long will you be insecure for? How long will you steal the tithe? How long will you be fearful? How long will you be belligerent? How long will you be hostile? How long will you be vulgar and cuss? And how long, how long, how long? At some point, that reminding begins to frustrate the Holy Spirit because he can be frustrated. He can be grieved. And these are things we're commanded not to do. At the very least, if you know you're being reminded for the 15th time this month, say, Father, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I'm a sharp man. I'm a sharp woman. Forgive me for needing this much reminding. Father, have mercy. At that point, that's when the rest of our training kicks in and you take an index card. Have you heard this before? Are you sure? Just once or twice. If the Holy Spirit is having to do a lot of reminding, you have forgotten the pastor, pastoral teaching of taking an index card and writing five scriptures that remind you of what the Holy Spirit's been reminding you of. He has to keep reminding us in that area because we've not yet written scripture on the table of our heart in that area. So he's having to do the reminding because it's not there yet. So wherever the Holy Spirit's reminding you over and over and over again, that becomes your prayer assignment. If for no other reason, so that you don't irritate your God. We've all been on the job realizing we were irritating our manager, our boss. You realize I'm not getting it fast enough. And this man or woman who's gracious enough to give me a paycheck is losing their patience with me. And God is long suffering, but he's not forever suffering. And he will eventually get irritated with us. Our job is to make sure we're doing everything we can. And he can look at us and say, well, you know, this is my son. Behold, my beloved son, Johnny Dum Dum. He's doing his best. Look at him. He doesn't just have one index card. He has a whole box of index cards and he is doing his best. Let's just help him. It comes back to why do we stay the same? Why do we stay the same? I am currently listening to, I'm watching videos from a rabbi teach on the Torah. And it has blessed me deeply. Don't worry, we're not going messianic Jew around here. I just seem to have a grace right now to study Judaism. But the old, he's a Jew. He's a rabbi. He's an Orthodox rabbi. He has the phylacteries and all this. But he said, the essence of every commandment. Now see if this doesn't sound like James 1. The essence of every commandment of the mitzvah, the Old Testament, 613 commandments. The essence of every one is an expectation that we do the word. And he says, and you can't be one with God without doing the word. He said, the law was not given for us to listen. The law was given for us to do. If the law is not done, you're not a follower of God. That's New Testament. You look at them, you think, this was supposed to be yours. <laughs> this salvation was supposed to be yours. This is to you were given Moses and the prophets and the law and the promises. But I'll eat from your fruit a little bit while I enjoy being grafted in. These commandments are not given for us to memorize. They're given for us to do. And by them, we assure our salvation by doing the word we reflect the image of Christ. By doing the word of God, we show others we're truly born again. Pastor Vaughn, uh, when he first got born again, he was driving down the road when the Lord called him to pastor. And he, the Lord told him, I think he was driving up here on Dixie by the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church. And back then, both of those churches still preached the gospel. And the Lord spoke to him and said, you'll never know how many people in that building are going to hell. And he wasn't just talking about those churches, but the body of Christ. You'll never understand how many folks go to church every service and are still going to hell. Because the difference is it's not about going to church. It's about walking with your God. And when you walk with your God, you change. You take on their, their nature. Verse 24, 
He forgetteth what manner of man he was, but whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Here we still are under a law, but this is a law that sets us free. This is a law that sets us free. The laws of God set us free. And if we continue therein, and that's where a lot of us struggle, that's, a, that's the human condition, we struggle with continuity. We struggle with consistency. That's that turkey. He'll, you'll shoot him, he'll fly 10 feet off the ground for about 70 yards, and that's about all he's got. Some of us will repent, we'll fly with God 10 feet off the ground for two or three weeks, and that's all we got. The Bible says we're to mount up with wings as eagles, not cluck like a chicken or squawk like a turkey. <laughs> Amen. Continue therein. Persevere. Remain alive. He not being a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. And that is the critical part, that we are a doer, a doer, a producer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. We are to be doers of the work, producers of the work. And this is where the hyper grace movement doesn't like it because this word says that the law requires work. The law requires work. To renew your mind takes work. To put your flesh under takes work. To have a healthy marriage takes work. To have healthy finances takes work. To subject your lust and your insecurity takes work. God's not going to do it for us. He gives us all the tools and then reminds us and reminds us and reminds us and reminds us. Even in our teaching the last few services on the seven job descriptions of the Holy Spirit, his job is to help. His job is not to do. His job is to teach. His job is not to do. His job is to remind. His job is not to do. His job is to bear witness. His job is not to do. His job is to convict. His job is not to do. His job is to guide, which means we follow. His job is not to do. His job is to show us things to come. That's still not doing what we're called to do. All of those things, all seven job descriptions of the paraclete, the Holy Ghost, they require our obedience and our work. So if he teaches us something, it means we're going to have to do something. That's work. If he reminds us of something, he usually reminds you of something you have to do. That's a work. If you get convicted... It's because you're going the wrong direction and now you need to go the other direction. That's going to take work. Now, thankfully, this work is not self-flagellation. This work isn't deprivation. This work is speaking the word, praying, fasting. This work is studying the scripture, putting your flesh under. We're not talking about slave labor. We're not talking about earning rewards in heaven through work, work, works, or even earning your way into heaven. We're just talking about being doers of the word and a producer, as the Greek says, a producer of the work. But there is the blessing. There's no blessing in listening. There's no blessing in just hearing. The blessing comes when you begin to apply the word of God to your life. Even this sermon tonight this is probably the thousandth time in 15 years I've taught this message. This is just packaged a different way. Never tried shrimp like this before. <laughs> shrimp scampi, shrimp jambalaya, shrimp etouffee, buffalo shrimp, coconut shrimp, sauteed shrimp. Yeah, this is just another way of saying, why are we staying the same? When you and I stay the same, we testify to God we don't want him or need him. Now, the other dangerous thing is there are other areas we'll say, Lord, I need you. I need you here. I need you here. And you'll call upon him. I'll call upon him. He'll show up in that area and then talk about this area over here. And we say, no, 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 Lord. No. This wasn't what we were discussing. I didn't call you here for this. But when the sovereign Lord shows up, whatever he wants to talk about, that's what you talk about. You, should, you and I should just be happy. We have... Uh, the presence of God. We have the ear of the Lord. We have his undivided attention. And if you cry out to God, oh, Lord, help my marriage. Oh, Lord, help my marriage. And he comes over here and says, let's talk about your attitudes. Well, Lord, I need, I need you to help my husband. And he says, I need to help you. <laughs> let's deal with your attitudes. You and I can't help but call on God and he show up and then touch whatever he wants to. Are you content or satisfied being the same or do you want more of God? Because when you and I call upon God, he's going to come into our life and his life is going to expose everywhere we lack life. And 
When we tell the Lord, I don't need any of that, it's like amputating part of your body. When the Lord shows up and begins to touch things and you say, no, Lord, no, Lord, you're basically saying, Lord, I don't want your life in that part of my life. I want my life the way I want my life. So that part of your life is cursed. And I don't think we realize how dangerous that can be. Our heart has to be, Lord, show up and touch anything you want. Talk to me about anything you want. Rebuke me over anything you want. Open any door you want. Go through any drawer you want. Look through my Facebook. Look through my Instagram. Look through my hidden files. Look through my cookies. Look through my internet history. Look through my text chat. Look through my pictures. Lord, you can have it all. That's a wise person because God already sees it all anyway. And yet the greatest force against God is the human will. It's the only thing that can stop him. We want to make sure that we become blessed in our deed. We're going to be working anyway. We might as well work in favor of God and in line with his scripture. Why else would God give us all this help through the power of the Holy Spirit? So, all right, so come back. Let's, ben, let's throw up that slide. I think I can move on now. John chapter 14, 15, 16. I want to review this. Uh, we've not been able to put up any of this teaching yet on our podcasting about the paracletical teachings of Christ and the seven job descriptions of the Holy Spirit. So we created this slide last week. Let's run through this again. I've been teaching this to Kenya uh, for three weeks in a row, so they're kind of overlapping to me. And there we go. Let's review quickly. This is kind of new doctrine for us, so I don't mind to cover it every service for a couple weeks till it becomes instinctual and very easily understood and grasped by us. The upper room discussion of Jesus Christ with his disciples after the Passover meal. Think about this. We said this last week. Jesus has this upper room, the Passover meal, the Paschal lamb in preparation for the Passover. The next day he's going to be crucified. After they have the Passover meal, Judas dips his hand in the sup. The Lord says, what you must do, do quickly. He leaves. Dinner's over. John chapter 14, 15, and 16 are taught. And I made the point last week, you put out the demon from your church and you can teach better things. You can teach deeper things. You can teach things you can't otherwise teach. Like the author of Hebrews says, I wish I could talk about Melchizedek, but you guys are a problem. And the teachings of John 14, 15, and 16 aren't really covered anywhere else in the Gospels, which tells me he had to get rid of Judas to take his disciples to the next level, which is why we don't have a problem excommunicating people today. We don't want to, but if it comes to it, let's put down the, the scorner and the strife will cease. So he gets to teach on the Holy Spirit, and it's never been done in the Gospels until Judas is gone, who had a demon who was a traitor from the beginning. And yet he was an anointed traitor because he preached the gospel. Judas healed the sick. Judas cast out devils. Judas raised the dead. Judas embezzled from the beginning. Had a demon from the beginning ministering to him. So we don't really get impressed with healing the sick, casting out devils or raising the dead because Judas did the same thing. And he was a thief and a crook and a traitor. So Judas is gone, and the Lord's able to teach these five paracletical teachings, or some call it the five paracletical sayings, covered in John 14, John 15, John 16. And those produce for us seven job descriptions of the Holy Spirit. Now, we like these seven job descriptions because they prepare for us what to expect out of the Holy Spirit. When I show up, uh, no, not anymore. When I was a geologist and I showed up on the job, I knew what my job description was. I knew what I could speak for and what I could speak against. I knew what was outside my domain. And that kept me safe and it kept them safe. The Holy Spirit has often by, been by Pentecostals said to do more than he really does. And a lot of stuff gets blamed on the Holy Spirit and it's really not the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's familiar spirits. And that is technically blasphemy. When you give... Uh, the Holy Spirit credit for the devils or the devil's credit for the Holy Spirit, mm, that's not safe. These seven job descriptions tell us exactly what the Holy Spirit's going to do. And then you come over to 1 Corinthians 12 and you see the nine manifestations of the Spirit. You see how the Holy Spirit's going to show out. All right. What I love about doctrine is it keeps us safe. It's not as exciting as running around the service and hooping and hollering and thrashing in the floor, but it keeps us safe when we decide to run and hoop and holler 
and thrash in the floor. So these seven job descriptions, Jesus told the disciples in John 14, I'll send you another comforter and another being a Greek word that means another of the same kind. So even though he's different, he's the same kind. And as you look at each of these actually words in the Greek, Jesus either did the same thing or continues to do the same thing. Jesus was a paraclete. That's the word comforter helper. He is still in, in 1 John 2, 1 called a paraclete. He's an advocate there according to the King James called together with against. It's a judicial term in context. He's still our comforter and helper. He, uh, today, the Lord Jesus is also our intercessor. The Holy Spirit's called the teacher. Uh, under the Hebrew language, Jesus was called rabbi. Rabbah means teacher in Hebrew. Rabbi means my teacher. So this was a very damning thing when a lot of the Jews would approach Jesus and call him rabbi because they would say, you're my teacher. And that's why he'd say, why would you say, Lord, Lord? Why would you call me your teacher and not do what I tell you? Rabbi is specifically my teacher. Rabbi is teacher. So Jesus was a teacher. Now the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Remembrancer. Jesus would say in the gospels, again, I say unto you, because he would have to remind them. And then you have a witness. Jesus said, I do bear witness and testify. Same thing the Holy Spirit does. Convincer, rebuker, egleko in the Greek. Uh, it's conviction. Hebrews says that the Lord loves, whom the Lord loves, he rebukes. Same word. So the Lord, he rebuked his disciples. He rebuked Peter to the face. It's the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Guide, he would lead us. The Lord Jesus did that. He's the good shepherd. He leads us in paths of righteousness. And then, of course, show us things to come, revealer of things to come. So every one of those, you can see the Lord Jesus either did when he was in the earth or some of them he continues to do in his heavenly ministry as our high priest and advocate. So these show us what to expect out of the Holy Spirit. And we made the point, they're all internal. Nothing is wonderfully spectacular outward. And that's awesome. We as charismatics get really hung up with signs and wonders. The Bible says they should follow us. We don't follow them. But all you have to do in our circles is declare you got miracles, signs, and wonders, and every unstable charismatic will drive nine hours to a meeting when they won't even drive 15 minutes on a Sunday night for their shepherd. And that's a dumb Christian. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Uh, with Pastor Tom Abungu today, I was teaching. It occurred to me, it occurs to me again, this this job of the Holy Spirit, comforter, teacher, reminder, witness, convictor, guide, remembrance, uh, um, uh, shower of things to come, revealer of things to come. These are all inward. Anytime these things are happening in your life, I won't know it. Like right now, the Holy Spirit could be convicting you, reminding you, teaching you, bearing witness with you, beginning to help you, and you have a vision and he shows you something to come. And I would never know any of that just by looking at you. And the difference is like Elijah, when he goes down to Mount Horeb to flee revival and responsibilities. Most pastors like the move of God until it's bigger than they want to be, and then they quit. And so Elijah runs down to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and he gets down to the mountain of God where revival hasn't taken place in 700 years. I don't really know why he went down there. Revival was just at Mount Carmel two weeks prior. That's where the fire was falling. Why are you going to the dead revival? And why use God's power to go to the dead revival? Why use God's blessing to flee the calling to go to the dead revival? You had fire falling. Everything you commanded was obeying you. The king was bending his weak knees before you. The nation of Israel just repented and killed all their TBN prophets. And now you're going to flee to a dead revival in the desert. And he gets there and there's three spectacular manifestations that mimic the revival of Moses' day. Earthquake, fire. <laughs> See if I can do that again. I should have said earthquake first. I should have said thunders and lightnings, but it's not in 2 Kings or 1 Kings 19. <laughs> Whirlwind. Supernatural, but God wasn't in it. Earthquake, supernatural, God wasn't in it. Fire, supernatural, God wasn't. Is it crazy? A supernatural fire at Horeb, God's not in it. Supernatural fire at Mount Carmel, God was in it. Two fires. 
But one was God and one was a demon. And then, a still, small voice that reminded him, what are you doing here? A still, small... We charismatics are the biggest freak show nut jobs. And TBN made the mess of us. One of the greatest prophets, all he needed was a still, small voice to get him back in his destiny. And all it was was a reminder. What are you doing here? This isn't revival. What are you doing here? In a sense, God's saying, I'm not here. This, all this supernatural is not me. This is a demon. I'm convinced it is a demon hanging out there for anybody dumb enough to go to try to rebottle an old revival. How do those powers know what to do? To repeat and recreate the phenomena of Moses receiving the Torah. So I taught this a few months ago. When we meet Elijah, Obadiah, the servant of Ahab says, if I leave to go get Ahab, God's going to take you by his spirit and take you someplace else. And you won't be here when I get back and I'll be killed. It's an interesting reputation to have for two men that have never met. Elijah's introduction is God just makes him disappear. And Elijah doesn't say, what are you talking about? What? Is, what? I never heard this. Nobody's posting this on Instagram. He says, no, no, no. As the Lord liveth, I will stay. Which is to say, because I do leave sometimes. And then we know when Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind, the sons of the prophets want to go look for him in the mountains, in the valleys where he may have been taken. Because that's his reputation. That's pretty trippy. So then why would the Lord speak to Elijah on Mount Carmel, when he's hiding in a cave, the Lord says, what are you doing here? He makes his excuse. Then the Lord says, go stand up on top of this mountain. And Elijah disobeys because it could be that he knows if I go stand on that mountain and I'll be right back at the gates of Jezreel where I don't want to be. God will use me and I don't want to be used that way. So he stays in the cave in disobedience, knowing what happens if he yields to God. And that's when the Lord says, I'm done with you. But it's a still small voice, a remembrance, a convincing, a rebuke, a guide. Everything the Holy Spirit does in our life, he was doing to Elijah, trying to get him back in his destiny. None of it was big or showy. The big and showy makes you look good. The small and still makes you feel like a worm because that's who we are when we start getting belligerent in the eyes of God. Now, I know we're his children, but we sometimes need to be reminded who's in charge and who's the pot. So everything we see up here, God was doing in Elijah's life. That ought to make us feel important because he was a helper to Elijah and he was teaching Elijah what to do and he put him in remembrance and he bore witness with him and he convinced him, rebuked him. He would tell him what to do. The last word the Lord ever spoke to Elijah, we have record of was, go anoint Elisha the Tishbite to be your replacement. He showed him things to come. We've got to make sure that we're open to all this. So then that also brought us, we said the, the very beginning of what we would call spectacular is the showing of things to come. And we have to discuss that because it is a promise. Uh, the Joel promise quoted in Acts 2 was that your young men would see visions and your old men would dream dreams. So we are expecting an increase in dreams, but we also don't want to be goofy with it. We made the point last week that if Pastor Caleb just happens to go and approach Ariel and says, the Lord gave me a dream about you last week, without even meaning to, Pastor Caleb will activate superstition in Ariel. We've all experienced some kind of goofy level of charismatica in that. And I'm all for the supernatural, but the last thing we need in the body of Christ is people drawing to themselves little superstitious cults. I mean, even as a pastor, I've had people say, I was praying for you and the Lord really put you on my heart. Because all of a sudden you get real fearful. Or... I've grown out of that. 
man, you're really on my heart. Is everything going okay? I get that. I used to get that phone call or text a lot and not that they were disingenuous, but I'd always evaluate myself and I think, wait, well, I was thinking we were doing pretty good, but now that you're concerned about me, do you know something I don't know? And I always, I've learned it doesn't matter. They're just praying for me. Maybe it was an urgency. Maybe, maybe they're not telling me the whole story that they hadn't prayed for anybody in three days and the Lord rebuked them. You're going to start with Pastor Chris. Oh, oh, maybe it's you that's under, in trouble, not me. So then I usually do my best to be as honest. Like, well, you know, no church is going great. People are doing good. We got a couple of dingalings, but that's part of pastoring. And money's great. Got some guest ministers coming out. I try to tell them any problems they're having to give them something to pray for. But in the earlier years, it used to make me paranoid. Just like it would to any one of you if all of a sudden somebody who you think's older than you would come up and say, I had a dream about you. <laughs> yeah, club plug ears. Well, great. Uh, well, I'm already married, so don't be dreaming about me. <laughs> I've almost convinced myself now that God doesn't do that just by studying the 23 dreams of the Bible. Pastor, or Dr. Cephas asked that question last week because we looked at the 23 dreams of the Bible. I omitted one, which was Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus the day he was crucified. She didn't need an interpretation. She said, have nothing to do with this man, for I have been troubled by him in dreams today, or my dreams have troubled me. She didn't have to ask him, what, you were in my dreams today. What did that mean? She knew exactly what it meant. Honey, don't have any dealings with this Jew. This is a pagan Roman. She didn't need dream interpretation. But somehow we as charismatics invented the ministry. And then we published books. <laughs> so we have a real issue. We need to understand what dreams are about because the Lord does want to give them to us. One of the things we said, Job 33 was kind of the big basis that we jumped off of. If you want to write down just verse 15, um, I'm just reviewing tonight and we may try to hit visions before we dismiss here in the next 15 or 20 minutes. If you want to jump to Job 30 real quick. I'm sorry, 33. Let's review real quick some of the things about dreams. Verse 14, for God speaketh once, yes, twice, yet man perceives it not. One of the things we said about dreams is from Job's account, God speaks to us in dreams when we won't listen while we're awake. So that keeps us from getting into pride over dreams. In a dream and a night vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men in slumberings upon the bed, then he opened up the, uh, the ears of men and sealeth their instruction. So dreams bring instruction. So my question then is, were we not paying attention while we were awake to receive instruction? So this kind of also fortifies that sometimes dreams are giving when we won't listen or pay attention while we are awake. That also keeps you from getting into pride over spiritual dreams. Notice it doesn't say he's going to give you dreams about other people. Even Pilate's wife's dream about Jesus was not to help Jesus. It was a warning to her. She wasn't going to try to steer Jesus' life with the dream she was given from the Father. But we've all, I think most of us have experienced the charismatic steering of a parking lot dream. I had a dream about you. All right, well, go back to bed. He seals their instructions that he may withdraw men from his purpose, not tell men what to tell other people that he may withdraw men from their purpose. So you see the dreams are always personal and they help to steer people in their own lives. Pastor Vaughn used to say, the most important person in your life concerning God is you. He'll deal with you about you first and foremost. And I've, I've also observed over the years, the uh, in-house dreamers always have a really messed up private life. How come you're always dreaming about everybody else in the church when your marriage is dysfunctional, your money's dysfunctional, your doctrine's dysfunctional, you have a therapist, you don't really have a pastor anymore, and you're just squirrely? Why do you always have dreams for everybody else? God doesn't ever speak to you about how weird and bizarre and unstable you are. He keepeth back his soul, actually, that he may withdraw man from his purpose, hide pride from man. 
He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from the perishing by the sword. Uh, so we also see that was in there. There was a terrifying, one of the translations says, a terrifying uh, comes with, with dreams. Because many times there are warnings. Many of the dreams in the Bible are warnings. The most prolific dreamer in the whole Bible was Joseph. He had more dreams. Old uh, New Testament Joseph, husband of Mary. Mary uh, Joseph had five dreams. Joseph only had two. Old Testament Joseph, patriarch. He only had two dreams and then interpreted three more. He only personally had two. And everybody knew the interpretation of them. Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus Christ, had five dreams. None of them needed interpretation, and they were all directional and full of warning. And then after those two or three years of five dreams, there's no record he ever dreamed anymore. Uh, now, it does make, it tickles me, studying the Bible, I've got 23 dreams from Genesis to Revelation, covering 66 books and roughly 2,000 years of history. 32,000 verses, only 23 dreams. And that's the number of dreams a charismatic prophetess has in a month. You guys know it because you've come from goofy circles. And as you're probably thinking through all this teaching, none of the dreams you heard lined up with anything biblical. It was always about other people and steering and warning and guiding and getting my hand on people. It's demonic. We also said last week there's three types of dreams. Pizza dreams, as we call them. We saw in Isaiah, there is a talk of pizza dreams. A hungry man will dream he ate food, and when he awakened, he was still hungry. And a thirsty man, when he fell asleep, dreamed he drank water, but woke up and he was a thirst. Those are pizza dreams. Dreams of your soul. Dreams of your life experience. Dreams of what troubles your heart. It's a pizza dream. Then there's the demonic dreams where the Lord says, do not listen to their dreams that you encourage them to have. And that's what really happens in charismatic circles. We encourage lightning rods for familiar spirits to dream a little dream about us because we like soothsaying. I would probably give a humble judgment that a lot of charismatic dreams that I have experienced, not in my personal life, but been in those circles, was really nothing more than Balaam. Soothsaying. Giving people what they want to hear. Because folks were too lazy to read the word or just be patient and live normal. We looked at those 23 dreams, and they really, there's only three categories of dreams. Those where God shows up and speaks, those where angels show up and speak, or those that are symbolism. Of 23 dreams, only six of them needed interpretation. Only two men in the entire Bible interpreted dreams Joseph the patriarch and Daniel. Six dreams out of 23, the only people that needed dream interpretation were pagans. Daniel said, excuse me, Joseph said in Genesis 40, interpretation of dreams belongeth to God. So if the dream belongeth to God, the interpretation belongeth to God. And if you're his kid, you'll get the interpretation. If you need an interpretation, it probably either indicates it wasn't a God dream. You haven't prayed to ask for the interpretation or you're a pagan. It's only one of the three. So God, if he gives us the dream, it's not for us to gallivant all over the country looking for an interpreter. Furthermore, I'm not a dreaming interpreter, so why would God give you a dream, give no interpretation in the service, so you have to leave your fold to go hunt down somebody who's goofy to get the interpretation? Why not just say, Lord, I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you're trying to say to me. Can you say it again? Try another way? Can I have a verse? Can I have a sermon? Can... Lord, I don't mean to be belligerent. I don't mean to be stubborn, but I, I didn't understand what you're trying to say. That dream, I don't even know what that was about. And if you wake up and ask the Lord about it and you still don't know, flush the dream. God is so merciful. If he's trying to preserve our life, he will preserve our life. He will warn us. He'll speak to us time and time again through a sermon, through, through uh, a scripture. He'll speak to us through a prophecy. He'll get the message across to us because we're his children and he wants to make sure he's communicating clearly. Furthermore, God is not stupid. He knows how well we understand him. If you understand God, you know that he, uh, he knows all things. So he's not going to give you a dream to confuse you. 
God is not the author of confusion. So if you have a dream and you're confused and you ask him for the interpretation and you stay confused, flush the dream because he's not the author of confusion. I don't care how symbolic and how much of Christian television is burping up in that dream. It may be you're still way too weird in the charismatic circles. Stick with the scripture and maybe just say, Lord, I'm sorry, I don't speak dreams. Can we have a scripture? Holy Ghost, can you be a remembrancer now? I don't mean to be picky. I just want to hear clearly. As I was preaching with Pastor Abungu's church today, they appreciate it because they work with translators. But there's many times, many times when Pastor Ingolf would appreciate it too. You're working with a translator and they speak excellent English, but you might say a word with an accent they don't understand. And they'll stop in the middle of your preaching. They don't, it doesn't matter how good you're going. I've been halted many times and they'll say, I'm sorry, can you say that again? And I'll, oh, Man, I had such a good flow going. I was, the one time we were, well, we preached several times in Nigeria, but we were only in Nigeria once. We had to stop and have about a three-minute discussion over karut. Karut. And I, I said, they said, say what? I said, carrot. What is a carrot? Carrot. Orange, green, Carrot. And then we like I had this preaching momentum going, and we were just doing so good, and we stomped on the brakes for carrot. And then the lady on the front row said, "Eh, carrot! He's saying carrot." It's like, ah, yeah, man, carrot. Get with the program. It didn't grieve God if the communication is not clear. You stop and make it clear. So I don't know how we developed all this weirdness where. We were afraid that, I, may, I don't know, it's superstition. It's this weird, perverse Tower of Babel, Ur of the Chaldees, Nimrod stupidity in us that we want mystical juju. And it's almost like when we charismatics start having dreams, it gives us a dream catcher. And oh, here's my charismatic dreams. It's like a spider web. And I've caught all these dreams from God. And it almost makes us some kind of nut job mystic. Some of you watch too much Lord of the Rings. You're just gandalfing it up, trying to be all the good witch, the bad wizard. I don't know. <laughs> Gandalf and your big old stick. God's not that spooky. Dreams are simple. You know it. If you don't, flush it. So, Lord, I don't speak dream. I speak scripture. English, kind of. Give me scripture, and I'll obey you, because he knows how well we do and don't hear from him. 23 dreams. Only six needed interpretation. What's that percentage? There's what we call math. Let's divide it. Come on. Equals 26%. About a quarter of the Bible's dreams needed interpretation, and they were all pagans. And somehow we made a charismatic dream interpretation ministry for spirit-filled believers and wooed them in to superstition and mysticism. It would almost be the Christian version of Kabbalah, which is nothing but Jewish mysticism and weird demonic arts. If God gives you the dream, he'll give you the dream interpretation. And that's why we also say that these dreams are kind of the lowest form of communication when it comes to the Lord. Now let's talk about visions real quick, and we'll kind of lay the foundation here. Go with me to the book of Genesis chapter 15. The very first vision you see in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 15, and it is with Abraham. We would ask, why does the Lord speak in so many different ways? But we might ask ourselves the same way. Why do we speak in so many different ways? We speak face to face. We speak with eye language. We speak with hand language. We speak with written language. We text. We tweet. Uh, smoke signals, book form, digital, electronic. We have all these different ways of communication. We have symbols, we have signs. All this stuff communicates. Posture communicates, grimaces communicate. We have a lot of different ways you and I communicate. Why, why would our God not choose a lot of different ways? He communicates to us from the written word. He communicates to us by the Holy Spirit. Still small voice. He communicates to us through the ministers, the preachers, the prophets. He communicates to us through leadership, even if it's a pagan leader. He communicates to us many ways. And then we step off into a more supernatural, we might say more spectacular. He gives us dreams. Then he gives us visions. It's just another way God can appear. 
And so the promise of Acts 2, quoting Joel, is that in the last days he'll pour out of his spirit upon all flesh, and the young men will see visions, and the old men will dream dreams. Here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, and after these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. So in this vision, in visions, you're able to interact. So there's something there to that. You also see it a little bit in dreams, but dreams are also called night visions. But those are only the visions that involve God. Uh, you see throughout the Old Testament, visions that involved angels or God, the person having the dream would often interact with them. Solomon had a dream God spoke to him, and he and Abraham, excuse me, he and Solomon had a conversation the whole night long in a dream. Here in this vision, God is in the vision. God's not always in every vision. You can have visions that God is not in. And, uh, but when God's in it, it's there to interact with him. It's interesting that you're having a vision. You're, your natural senses are suspended, and you're seeing into the spirit realm, so it is a gift of the spirit. But you're able to interact even out of your heart. I'm skipping ahead, but even with Peter, Peter argues with the Lord. That's a trance. It's a higher level of vision. Here, Abraham is doubting God. Now, not technically doubting, but he's asking him questions that he has as a concern. So even though he's having a vision, his heart is still coming out. His humanity is still interacting with God Almighty. Now, when you study the life of Abraham, you see he had more encounters with God than almost anybody else in the Bible except for Moses, because sometimes it's God appearing in a dream. Sometimes it's a vision. Sometimes it's a theophany. Sometimes it's God speaking in a voice. You you see the full gamut, except for a trance, happening in the life of Abraham. Why? I think it's so God could communicate to Abraham in a lot of different forms that Abraham might know him more fully because he didn't have any written scripture to know God by. So if God shows up in a theophany, that's one way to know God. God shows up in a vision, that's another way to meet God. God show up in a dream, that's another way to meet God. God speak from heaven, that's another way to meet God. And so we have here in this vision, he's asking the Lord question. You said you're my shield, my exceeding great reward. What will you give me, seeing I go childless and the steward of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? That means he picked up Eleazar out of Syria. And Abraham said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him. So we, now we transition from a vision to a word of the Lord. God appears in a vision, and now the word of knowledge is working in Abraham's life. This shall not be thy heir, but he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Visions are while you're awake. They interrupt your life. You're not expecting to have them. All of these things are, di- are divine and they're providential. You can't make an appointment with God and say, this time tomorrow, God's going to give me a dream. It doesn't work that way. This time tomorrow, God's going to give me a vision. They happen when God wants to give them. It's a micro sovereign move of God. But they are one of the many ways God will answer us. The difference between a vision and a night vision is the time of day. Heavy, isn't it? (laughs) I have had maybe three visions, maybe four my whole Christian life. Most of them were when I was in college. The most pronounced vision I had is, and I've been taught by Tony Marable, one of my disciples, that when the Lord speaks to you in a vision, don't argue with God. You'll know it's a vision because you didn't make it up and it's, it's not just a daydream. It suspends your, your senses. It, it, it's, it blocks out your vision. You're not just thinking a thought. You're seeing with your eyes a vision, not with your mind. What you're looking at goes away, and you're seeing something different. And he said, you'll know it when you have it. Don't argue with God. Just say, nevertheless, Lord, I receive it. Be it unto me according to your will. So the most pronounced one I can think of right now was in college, And I was spirit-filled and zealous, and I had gotten word that there was going to be this FCA Bible study, and uh, I was invited to it. It was that night, and I had told the Lord, well, there's no point in going to that. Those FCA people don't want the Holy Ghost. It's going to be a bunch of doubt and unbelief. So I wasn't going to go to it, and that day 
I was working uh, for my boss. I was painting uh, his apartment, so they were needing to be repainted. So I was kind of like just a handyman for him. And he had a two-story, one of the townhouses over there off of Virginia. And I was, I'd gone to put the ladder in the staircase because I had to paint the, the wall over the stairs. So it's a really hard thing to get to. The first thing that had happened is I had put the ladder and I'd swung it from the stairs over the opening and I hit the glass globe with the ladder and the glass fell on my face and busted. And I said, oh, Jesus. And there was no issues. It's just like the, the globe broke on my face. And it's that thin white glass that just says slivers. Busted right here. I didn't wear glasses. I wore contacts in those days. Right on my face. I thought, Jesus, no problem. So, all right, so we clean up. We got to go back to painting. So I'm painting and I'm painting it white. And I'm on this ladder. I'm praying in tongues. And I'm just rolling my roller up and down painting. And I rolled up. And when I rolled down, I had a vision. And in this vision... I'm seeing the Bible study that night and I'm laying hands on eight people and they're falling out speaking in tongues. It's a vision. I like everything is frozen and I'm seeing into the spirit realm. I know everything that's going on. I, all I, I know the number of people. I know I'm laying hands on them. I know it's the FCA Bible study. I know that it's at Tanya's house and I know they're getting spirit filled. And I just think, and I said in my heart, yeah, but Lord, they don't want the Holy Ghost. And then Tony's, teaching kicked in. I said, nevertheless, be it unto me according to your will. Because that's what Tony said to say. So I said it. So then I, then I rolled down and it was gone. And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to that Bible study tonight. Because if a vision comes to pass, you got to be a part of it. So I went to that Bible study and there were like 20, 25 people. We were at the bottom of Tanya's house. She had a do, uh, split level. And I just sat quiet the whole time. And there's 20 of us there, men, boys and girls and FCA. And I just sat quiet because it was what I expected it to be. And I thought, well, that wasn't a vision then. Then all of a sudden, they start talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost and speaking in other tongues. And I went, what? What is this? And then one by one, people began to get uncomfortable and leave. And they began to ask questions. And so they were like, does anybody know about this? So I said, well, yeah. So I start teaching. And before it was all said and done, we laid hands on only three, which bothers me because I saw eight in the vision receiving the Holy Ghost, which means five didn't stick around because there was 20 or so. There's a lot. And I'm left with three, a guy named Jeff, a girl named Betsy and a guy named Tom. And I laid hands on them and they all three got spirit filled. And that was the night my tongues went from to Vietnamese. And in that season, my friend Marlon, who does our artwork around here, who still lives out in Washington, he was in Vietnam. And I was just convinced I'm witnessing to somebody like it's not biblical. Like I've possessed somebody's body over there. And I'm just like, witness. I got his language and he's got my English. It has to be what's going on. <laughs> that was what my mind thought when my tongues, my tongues changed gears. So it changed. It, it happened exactly as I saw it. It just didn't have all the people there, but I would have never gone. But there was no doubt. It wasn't a daydream. I wasn't expecting it to happen. I, I, I rolled up and I rolled down and there it just unfolded and they got spirit filled and it was a big change in my life. This is something God does as he sees fit. That case, it was showing me things to come. It fulfilled that. It was spectacular. Though anybody present would not have seen the same vision. They'd have just seen me roll up and just kind of freeze for a second. Like, what am I seeing? And then it only lasted two, three, four seconds. And then I could hear stuff going on around me. It wasn't like I was in a trance, but it's a way God speaks to us and shows us things to come. We need to be prepared for these because they'll happen as God sees fit. We don't go chase them. We chase God. We don't chase dreams. We don't chase visions. We chase God and he speaks to us as he sees fit. And it helps when you have a walk with God and there's many more things to say. I will look at the next vision. Um, look at Numbers 12, just to kind of affirm this. We'll look at one or two more verses, and then we'll, we'll get ready to close. I like being able to take our time and teach so that we are further established in God's Word. 
Numbers 12, verse 6, and God said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and I will speak unto him in a dream. Visions and dreams are ways in which God makes himself known unto us. That may be why Abraham had so many of them. It's a way God made known unto him. Of course, like I said, he didn't have the Torah. He was operating with God without the law of Moses. Numbers is the law of Moses being written. So these are some of the laws and some of the rules God has shown forth. And then verse chapter 24, verse 4. Let's look at a verse there about visions. And then we'll close with this. Numbers 24. Actually, let me go back. Let me go back real quick. We'll save that for another time. Go back to Numbers 12. Let me point out something here. I just learned this today, listening to the rabbi. It's really been a blessing to me because the Jewish insights to the Old Testament are very profound. I've spent the last year studying the mitzvah, the midrash, and the Talmud for the botany book, and it really is amazing how much of their doctrine is New Testament. They just don't see Christ. And that should make sense to us because Peter, James, John, they were all Jews. And for 200 years, the Christians were called the sectarians. They were considered to be Jews, but they followed this Messiah figure. So the Jews, even the Talmud, don't use the term Christians. They use the term sectarians. There's even big midrashic debates debunking Trinitarian theology because you can tell the sectarian Jews are preaching to these Jews the Trinity. And there's arguments you can find in the Midrash where they're having to defend a lack of, in their eyes, a Trinity. Because if there is a Trinity, then Jesus has to be the Son, and they can't stand that. Anyway, so let me read this here. So this is where Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses. That's dumb. Don't do that. It'll get you in trouble every time. Moses is not perfect. He doesn't make perfect decisions. But if he's right with God, and God likes him more than he likes you, Love doesn't matter anything. So they rebuke him, and uh, the Lord rebukes Mary and Aaron. And this is what he said to Mary and Aaron. Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him a dream. My servant Moses is not so. So Moses is more than just a prophet. I will not just appear to him in a vision and a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. This is critical because it infers that dreams and visions are dark speeches. They're not ultimate clarity. Now, I'm going to help us here. This will really, I got this from a rabbi today. Dreams and visions and most charismatic experiences are dark sayings. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So he's saying, listen, prophets, yeah, I'll show dark sayings to visions, dreams, trances, but not Moses. So to this day, the Jews esteem Moses higher than all other prophets. And the reason is that Moses was given the law of God. He was given the law of God, which is not dark sayings, written with the finger of God on tablets of stone. All other prophets that came after him simply pointed back to the law. The job of every other Old Testament prophet was to say, do the law of Moses. Do the law of Moses. Prophets were raised up to get God's people back on track. Where were they off track? They didn't do the law of Moses. So here's the encouraging thing for you and I. We have a more perfect law, the law of liberty. And even our modern prophets, when they're real prophets, not TBN prophets, not golf cart prophesying, golf cart, golf club. Steve-O and I were in a service where we saw Big Bertha. Big Bertha's what, about an $800 driver or something. Saw that prophesied over a man and it came to pass. That would be a familiar spirit because God is not really interested in Big Bertha golf clubs. That was really big 15 years ago, Big Bertha's. I don't know if this, Chad, are they still? Not anymore? 25 years ago? Expensive? $450 25 years ago. 
With Bidenflation, that's $5,000. <laughs> so the prophets, even to this day, point people back to the word of God. So when we have the more sure word of prophecy, thank God for drip, visions and dreams and trances, but there's still going to be dark sayings because they're not the day star that arises in our heart growing brighter and brighter. This is why it's for all of our charismatic experiences, which I love and I'm all for, this word still takes the preeminence. I, doubtless I'll come to visions and revelations like Paul said, but I have a more sure word. Thank God for visions and dreams. Thank God for dark sayings from God. But why have a dark saying when I can just read clearly? So I really appreciate that uh, uh, observation from that rabbi that they esteem Moses as different. He gave the law of God. And they actually esteem the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, higher than the prophets because the prophets don't put forth any law. They just point back to the law. They just point back to the law. But Jesus comes along and says, Moses and the prophets. Even Jesus saw a distinction between the two. And we have the best of everything because we have the Holy Ghost within and we have the complete canon of God's word. Listen, church, if we fail in this life with everything we've been given, holy Toledo, we got to be some serious Johnny dum-dums. All right, that's enough teaching for tonight. We learn anything? Amen.